This is Jason Yates, CEO of My Faith Votes, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the My Faith Votes podcast. I recently had a conversation with our very own Mike Huckabee. I call him our very own because he is the honorary national chairman of My Faith Votes. And who better to serve us in this capacity than a man who was a pastor, was a governor, and ran twice for president? We spoke about many different topics, including our nation's response to COVID-19 our response as Christians, and the pending elections in November. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. Governor Huckabee, thank you for joining us. We're so glad you're here with us. Joining from your home, thanks for making the time. Well, Jason, great to be with you and all of the folks who are joining us from around the country. Uh, As you can see, I'm like a lot of people during the uh, stay-at-home quarantine I really could use a haircut. So tonight I just decided to use a hat. But, you know, I've found that you can do a lot of things online, including going to church. And I do my show from my home studio, even though I should be in Nashville where we normally tape it. But the one thing I have not been able to get done online is to have someone give me a haircut over the Internet. So if anybody's got any ideas on that and a few other things. But tonight I know we're going to talk about why this uh, is maybe a wake up call for Christians around the country and also why this election this year really, truly is an incredibly important election, not for the next four years, but for the next 40 years and even beyond. You're incredibly right. And I I can't wait to jump into these questions and get your insight. I'm just thrilled that we're able to have this town hall meeting because of COVID. It actually has given us this opportunity in a sense, because you're home, I'm home, and we're able to do this in this type of format. We have asked, we sent out an email and asked people to submit questions. And boy, did we get a lot of questions. People have a lot of things on their mind, but of course, right now, the thing that's most on their mind is COVID-19 and really thinking about the response of our nation and our government to this pandemic. So I want to jump first to a question from Patricia. And Patricia has a question that just simply is, was the shutdown of, uh, of our economy really necessary and can it come back? Let's take those in order. Yeah. Was it necessary? Uh, I think that the people making the decisions uh, saw information that most of us are not going to have access to see. And I have confidence in the president. I have confidence in the people around him at the highest levels that there's no way they would have done the things they did to shut down virtually the entire economy had they not been genuinely alarmed. And and I'll go beyond the president and the politicians. Let's be honest, the NCAA would not have canceled March Madness. Major League Baseball would not have canceled their season. Uh, Every college and university in the country shut down. Every school, you had the Masters, NBA. We're talking billions of dollars just in big events involving, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of spectators. Every concert venue, every artist and all the So look at that great breadth of things that have closed. The truth is, if there was not confidence in all of these arenas that this was a serious public health risk and that this could become a pandemic that could potentially kill millions, I don't think the actions would have been taken. Were the projections maybe overblown? We'll find out someday. Perhaps they were. But if we hadn't taken the steps, then I promise you there would have been people saying, well, our leaders failed us. 
They went ahead and told us to go ahead and do our normal business and go to the mall and go uh, to uh, football and baseball and basketball and uh, uh, big events and concerts. And we all died from it. There's no perfect answer. I think we look at it and we say that every day, the people having to make decisions make them on the basis of information they get. And I think the second part of the question, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was worded, Patricia, but it was something the effect that can the economy come back? Yes, but it won't come back quickly. The biggest problem that we're facing is that a lot of small businesses will not be able to recover. I don't care how much money the government uh, gives in the SBA loans. Their customer base has been shattered. Their employees have scattered. The communities aren't going to be the same. I mean, just ask yourself, how many people are ready this week to go back to their normal routine of getting on airplanes, getting on subways, getting on public transportation, going to a big event, going to a restaurant, for heaven's sakes, and sitting at a table with total strangers next to you? So I think we're looking at a long, long recovery. If there's one bit of good news, it's that the economy was on fire before this started. So we, we started from a place of strength rather than weakness, and that is the saving grace if there is one economically. Yeah, well, and I think it's important to also look at the long-term impacts of what's happened and yeah. what's the impact to inflation, the national debt and purchasing power. As a former governor, how, how would you think about that? And what are the things that we should be doing and, and what would you want to see politicians down the road be doing to ensure that we're minimizing those negative effects? One thing that I think we can be grateful for, and, and I'm not making this as uh, a political endorsement or, or thought because my faith votes is, is genuinely nonpartisan. Obviously, we have our own views and everybody I think knows mine. But one of the reasons that we have a shot of getting out of this is that President Trump really believes in a private sector free market economy, which means that he will put more emphasis on deregulating the obstacles for businesses to get back to business. If this were a leftist leadership in charge, they would want the government to be running everything. Mm. That would be absolutely horrendous in terms of slowing things down to a level that we might not recover ever. And the country literally might collapse. And I, I don't say that facetiously or lightly. We have only really the potential of coming back if we begin to decentralize the power from Washington back to the local governments at the state and local level. We free up business people to make decisions and to do things that will work in their communities without having to ask 15 government bureaucrats, is it okay to do? Let's, let's look at something that we are seeing. There are states where the governors are acting with such heavy hands and it's destructive. When you have the governor of Michigan saying that you can go to the store and you can go up and down the aisles, and if you see seed on the shelf and you'd like to go plant a garden, you're prohibited from buying the seed to plant a garden, but you can go to the other part of the store where they're selling produce and touch the produce that dozens of strangers have touched, and that's okay. Yeah. Americans aren't stupid people. We see through that, and we know that that's when government is just not being sensible. They're not exercising common sense. They're being arbitrary, capricious, power hungry, and it's destructive. As a former governor, what are the factors that you'd be thinking about mostly? And what are some of the things that maybe, you know, aren't as obvious to the American public that you're thinking about and considering in 
states of emergency like this. You you always want to position assets and resources so that the if the worst happens, you're prepared for it. One of the reasons the shutdown happened was not because we thought that you know that so many people would get sick and they would die and there would be you know a hundred million body bags. It was that we don't have a hospital healthcare system that is big enough to handle the potential cases that we saw coming. So it was a matter of overwhelming the healthcare system to a level that you would have people unnecessarily dying. So the steps to take uh, that were taken to mitigate this were done so we didn't overwhelm that healthcare system. And quite frankly, that's been a good decision. Here's what now you're, you're seeing. You have many governors who are saying, let's get things ramped back up. Let's open up the economy. Some are gonna do it very quickly. For example, in Georgia, uh, you can get a tattoo this Friday. Uh, I know, Jason, you've been talking about what kind you're going to get when you go We've been over trying to, the... to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure that's an essential thing, but they're looking at a lot more than, let's say, in places like Texas or Tennessee. Every state's different, and that's why the president has pushed these decisions back down to the state level. That's where they belong. The right. 10th Amendment says that, and I still believe in the Constitution. But I will say this, that um, I think states need to start looking at how quickly can they get people back to work, even if it's uh, modified a little bit, and back to some routine, because uh, nothing is worse than getting in a long-term lockdown to the point that we all end up with sort of a, uh, what I call a public health version of the Stockholm Syndrome, where mm. people start getting comfortable, used to the idea of lockdown, and they're afraid to leave. Uh, you know, I've been at my house. I hadn't left my house in almost six weeks. I've got all my grandkids here. Let me tell you, one or two things is about to happen. We're going to open this stuff up, or you're going to see me in a hostage tape. One of the two things is about to happen. I, I say with great sincerity, though, we've got to get people back moving, back out uh, doing their routine, going to church, for example. And we can't have people saying that you can go to a drive-in liquor store, but you can't do a drive-in church service, which we've seen in Kentucky, Mississippi, in Florida, uh, several states. We've had this issue in Michigan and uh, other places as well. You think about the concerns of religious freedom and government control. Yeah. So how should the church think about that? How should individuals or the, approach that and... Should we be concerned? We should very much be concerned. And, and here's my fear. It's one thing for us to have a, a period of uh, weeks in which churches voluntarily do their services online or in the parking lot with the drive-in. But we don't want a government that can say to a church, we are suspending the First Amendment. The very first right in the First Amendment is freedom of religion, followed by freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. To say that those have been suspended by the government, they better have a reason that's overwhelming. And there have been some heavy-handed things in Tampa, Hillsborough County. The sheriff told the pastor of, uh, of the church there that they could go ahead with their Sunday services as long as they practiced social distancing and took precautions, which the church did. $100,000 of an air filtration system, put gloves on everyone, gave them all disinfectant. On Monday, after they had the church service they were told they could have, the pastor was actually arrested and arraigned for it. This is a frightening thing. When the mayors of places like Greenville, Mississippi and Louisville, Kentucky started sending police officers to give tickets to people in their cars for $500 for attending a drive-in service, 
this is the first wave of when government says, hey, these people went along pretty willingly. The next time we have an issue and we want to make the church conform to something that's politically correct, we'll just tell them they can't meet. And we don't want to ever get used to this idea that the government can tell us when we can gather, what we can say, and how we can get around it. So what do we do about it? Um, we're concerned. We have these things happening that elevate our concern. What can people do? Does it help to contact your elected officials? Do they listen when you do? Well, they do, especially when they know that you're representing millions of potential voters. And one of the reasons that uh, I'm involved in My Faith Votes, uh, one of the reasons I think it's an important uh, endeavor is because in America alone, there's between 60 and 80 million professing evangelical Christians. If all of the Christians, no, let me say this. If half the Christians who say they are would go and vote in November, every single election would be influenced by, if not completely driven uh, by Bible-believing evangelical Christian, uh, as well as our other brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom share with us pro-life convictions and uh, views of religious liberty. So that's why it really is important. I think we contact our officials, but we also, we use our rights as citizens. Um, churches are fighting back. The church in Tampa, for example, enlisted the assistance of Liberty Council. Others are using Alliance Defending Freedom or Pacific Justice Institute, uh, Liberty uh, Institute in Texas. All of these organizations are helping people defend themselves and actively fight for their rights. And we should not be critical of that. We should be grateful that these folks are standing up and, and really fighting for all of our basic fundamental constitutional rights. Yeah. And I think what you said is so important of uh, just getting out. The, the biggest thing we can do is vote. And we can let people know our opinions through our votes. We can always have additional actions like contacting somebody. I saw a fascinating study today. I, I didn't have a time to dig into it, but the conclusions of this study are that atheists and agnostics are much more, nearly twice as active politically than people of faith. And so if we're not taking opportunity to bring the influence of our faith to what's happening in our government and our communities, then we can't complain, right? Uh, we don't have yeah. a right to. And, and Jason, there's a reason that people who are atheists are more likely to vote than people who are evangelical Christians and Bible-believing uh, Christians. And here's why. For us, government is not God. We ultimately have our hope in something bigger uh, than any political party or any political figure. Our, our faith is not in who gets elected to be president, governor, senator, or congressman. Our ultimate faith is in God. If you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, often government is the biggest God you've got. So yeah, they're gonna be very interested in it because we have what I would call dual citizenship. That's why I believe it is vitally important that those of us who are uh, Bible believers exercise in the voting booth, our faith. That's why we call it my faith votes because it should. We want you to get involved and, and be part of the process so I would like to ask if you're if you're watching this and you're committed to voting, text the word vote to seven three 
0.075. When you do that, My Faith Votes is going to equip you with tools and resources throughout every election to make sure that you are fully equipped to think well about the issues and to vote, um, to get registered, to know when your elections are happening, to be fully equipped with voter guides, et cetera. So uh, do that, text vote to 73075. Here's one other thing, Governor, when we're talking about the response to COVID and all that's happening, we're seeing with elections right around the corner, less than 200 days, we are seeing a lot of concern around what's gonna be happening to the election process. We've gotten a number of questions about that and especially concerns around voter fraud. Are you concerned about that? Does this create heightened situations where that is a much higher risk? Well, Jason, I'm concerned about voter fraud when there isn't a COVID-19 going on. You know, I spent my political life over the past 30 years, mostly in Arkansas, where we used to say, if you couldn't get the cemetery vote, you couldn't win the election. Uh, Our way of saying, you know, dead people do vote. That's why I tell people I believe in the resurrection. I'd see them come out of the grave and go vote every election day. But voter fraud is real. I know people downplay it and say it doesn't really happen, but it does. Does it swing a lot of elections? Maybe not. But if it swings one, it's one too many. What I think we need to be worried about in the wake of COVID-19 and the government shutdown and social distancing and all the things that may keep people away from traditional voting methods is the idea of vote by mail without any accountability. How do we know that a person voted with integrity? If they vote by way of the internet, do they get a personalized code that once it's used, it can't be used by anyone else? There are some things that could be done to make it safer, but as citizens, not just just as Christians, but as citizens, we need to demand transparency in the voting process, and we need to demand accountability for the manner in which the votes are registered, tabulated, and accounted for. Absolutely. I do want to say that My Faith Votes is keeping track of all the changes that are happening. And as the election processes are happening, we are adjusting our systems and our processes. So we have a voting assistance center. Uh, That's where you can learn about elections that are happening and changes to key dates, et cetera, changes to processes, vote by mail processes, and what you can do uh, to vote. So visit myfaithvotes.org. You can be fully informed and we will keep you informed as well. But to your point, Governor, with vote by mail, this is a key issue. And I think what we just don't want to see happen is government's uh, state rushing to put procedures in place that don't have that type of transparency, that don't have the checks and balances. There are some states that have vote by mail processes, but they've incorporated the necessary checks and balances so that it works. Doesn't mean that it's foolproof of fraud, but it works. We, I'm concerned that if we see some states start putting some things quickly into place, that it is going to create some concern. And, and one thing you can always look for, who are the vendors who are supplying those local governments and the state governments with the apparatus? Yeah. 
This is where the potential for fraud lies. It's not that the politicians themselves at the state level are going to sit down and say, let's cheat. The people that they contract with, that they hire, if you will, to deliver the votes, that's where the problems will likely happen. And that's why there's got to be a strong level of transparency. As a citizen, you ought to ask, who owns this company? Who are the board of directors? Who gets a salary? How much do they get? Where have they done this effectively? What kind of a track record do they have? Uh, are they influenced by any particular political figures? Are they run by a bunch of political operatives? I, I've thrown a lot of questions out there, but those were the questions that I would be asking before I would ever be comfortable with someone coming in and saying, we can get your voting process either by mail or by machine or by internet. Better know who these people are and who is uh, behind them and how much money they're gonna make out of this. That's absolutely true. And if you are thinking, anyone's thinking about voting by mail or absentee ballot, you can do that through through the tool if you if you text the word vote to 73075. We'll get you all set up with that. But I think these questions around voter fraud is really a question of what's at stake, because we wouldn't be so concerned about fraud if there wasn't a lot at stake. And you already said the outcomes of these elections isn't about just the next four years. It's about the next 40 years. In your mind, what are the biggest uh, concerns or the things that are most on your mind? What's at stake, in other words, in 2020? Well, we're going to have such a dramatic contrast between the two political parties and the two presidential candidates. Joe Biden is presumptively the Democrat candidate. He's now embraced the Green New Deal. He's embraced uh, foreign policies that basically say open borders are okay. Uh, he believes that abortion should be taxpayer funded. He didn't used to believe that, but now he's come around in order to appease some of the more left-leaning people in his party. So if he gets to appoint a Supreme Court justice who might serve for the next 25 to 45 years, think about that. President Trump has proven to be strong friend of Israel. He has proven to be strong in deregulation, cutting taxes. But I think most amazingly to a lot of people, to some degree, me too, we've never had a president who has fought harder for religious liberty. I don't think Donald Trump could find John 3.16 in a Mark New Testament. I've said that to him before, so I'm not saying it uh, now. Uh, I don't claim he's a biblical scholar, but he has a respect for those of us of faith to a point that he has doggedly fought to make sure that our rights aren't trampled upon. And if you don't think so, Attorney General Bill Barr has already made it clear that he's going to start investigating these governments that got so heavy handed with churches. Now, that's a far cry from how it was when the IRS went after church groups and said, you, your pastor can't say that from the pulpit. So let me say it in this way. There's a big philosophical difference between your belief in whether you are a collectivist or an individualist. If you are an individualist, you believe that freedoms are personal, you believe that they're God-given, and you do not believe that government has power other than that which it has been loaned by the people. If you are a collectivist, you believe that we all have to be a part of a group and that only as our groups have strength do we have personal strength and that we basically are expendable to the larger concern of the state or the government. That's really going to be the deciding uh, factor in this uh, 2020 election cycle. Individualism or collectivism? 
And I, I maybe that'll be overly simplistic for some people who are on this call, but I think it's pretty accurate as to what we're facing. You know, in every election, people are, have a choice and it's around issues. And it seems more and more people are thinking about personalities. We hear about it all the time. Uh, we hear that I can't vote for either of these people <laughs> because they don't represent my morals or my values. I think a lot of people would look at you know, the presidency and, and the, the, that election and say, I'm, I'm concerned about how I cast my vote. What do you say to them? Well, uh, you, you should be. Uh, you should vote, however, your faith and your values. Don't vote for somebody because you think that he would be the ideal person to sit beside you in church. Ask, will the decisions this individual make empower me as a liberty-minded American, or will it maybe take some of my basic fundamental liberties away? And will the people that he or she appoint, will they re represent the things that are of great value and importance to me? Or will they make decisions that fundamentally harm my ability to teach my children what I want to about biblical marriage, about uh, gender identity? If people get elected who say that if you don't believe there are 57 genders, then you can't coach Little League Baseball, you can't um, go to a youth camp, you can't pastor a church that won't be under some kind of government uh, sanction and lose tax exempt status. I, I don't think a lot of people understand what is at stake when we get to the place where the philosophical differences are as dramatic as they are. Yeah, my brother-in-law and his wife are looking at adoption. I think adoption would be one of those you could put in that category Absolutely. Uh, and, and limited abilities there as well. Uh, when we're thinking about these coming elections, I think that this state of emergency that we're in, the pandemic is highlighting that there is a need to really think about and consider not just the presidency, but state and local elections, that they yeah. mean more to what's happening in our communities and what impacts our lives every day than what happens at the federal government. There are 100,000 elections happening in 2020. We say that all the time, mm -hmm. but that needs to sink in with people. We have opportunity to bring the influence of our faith to every single one of those uh, if we will just get out and vote. Very well said, and I cannot emphasize enough uh, that what you just said is so critically important. A lot of people think the only election that matters is president. Yeah, that matters. But school board in your community matters. Even if you don't have kids in school, uh, what textbooks the kids in your district have does matter to you because it's going to shape their, their ideologies, their minds. County commission, city council, state legislature, governor, Congress, U.S. Senate, all of these elections have big, big impact. And you shouldn't just say, oh, the only thing I care about is the presidential election because uh, those ordinances that shut your church down probably happened at the local level. Uh, it wasn't the federal government that did that. It right. was your local city, the local county. In some cases, it was a state governor who said you can't go fishing and you can't mow your lawn. Now, you look at stuff like that and you say, that's, that's nonsense. What do you mean I can't mow my lawn? But if a governor says that's not essential, uh, a lot of folks would look at the grass up to their knees and say, yeah, governor, it's pretty essential that I go mow my lawn right now. Uh, how do you fix it? You get rid of people who think like that and you elect people who bring their brains to the state capitol. That's right. I have one more question if you have just a couple more minutes for me, but uh, this was 
from Christy, and it says, what Bible verse sticks out to you to focus on and read in preparation for the coming elections? Mm. Is there anything that might stick out to you? Well, I, I think maybe a lot, but the one verse that has been my life for since I was 15 was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that means I can vote sensibly. I can serve uh, as a citizen in maybe not, not everybody's going to run for office, but everyone can have some involvement. But it's not about how smart you are. It's not about how tough or how uh, important, well-informed you are. It's I can do all things. And the key here is through Christ who strengthens me. Let us never forget that our strength does not come from uh, our education or our affiliations with people or groups. It comes from our walk with God. And that's why vote your faith. Don't just vote your feelings. Don't just vote your friend's feelings. Vote your faith. Pray. Ser seriously pray. You know, I, I believe that God answers our prayers. And if we say, God, give me wisdom as to who to vote for. If I didn't believe God would answer that prayer, I wouldn't even suggest that we pray at all. But of course he will. Thanks, Governor. And if you want to get equipped to pray, to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, and to think biblically about issues, and to get prepared and equipped to, to vote in these coming elections, I, I encourage you, visit our website at myfaithvotes.org. You'll find all kinds of resources there to help you in those three ways. Governor, I am so thankful that you've joined us and been here with us for these few minutes uh, this evening. And um, thank you for taking the time and for representing My Faith Votes. It is my honor and privilege, and I encourage everyone uh, to go to the website, text to the number that Jason has mentioned, be part of what we're doing in My Faith Votes. Thank you and God bless. Thanks for tuning in to this conversation with Mike Huckabee. My Faith Votes wants to encourage you to get equipped to vote for every election. Text the word VOTE to 73075. That's the word VOTE, V-O-T-E, to the number 73075. When we all vote, we lift up the welfare of the nation with the good of our faith. Thanks for joining us on this episode.